Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This episode of The Bowery Boys is brought to you by The Bowery Boys at Joe's Pub. That's right. Greg and I will be performing for a second time The Bowery Boys... Halloween Spooktacular, live on stage at Joe's Pub on October 27th and October 31st. That's Halloween to you and me, Greg. We still have a few tickets available, so head over to publictheater.org to get your tickets now. You can also get your Halloween spook on with the Bowery Boys on October 12th for a one-day special event through Bowery Boys Walks. It's the Haunted NoHo Ghost Tour. You'll join tour guide Carl Raymond on a tour of some of our favorite haunted sites in the neighborhood of NoHo. And then both Tom and I will be joining up afterwards to explore further haunts. And further spirits (laughs) in a bar uh, for a little reception afterwards. So head to BoweryBoysWalks.com to book that special Halloween tour on October 12th. The Bowery Boys episode 298, The Story of Brooklyn Heights, the first American suburb. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Today we're returning to Brooklyn. In fact, one of the most famous neighborhoods in New York City. Brooklyn Heights, a New York historian's dream neighborhood located just south of the Brooklyn Bridge overlooking the East River. A dream neighborhood because it really does offer a crash course in, among other things, architectural history. Because when you walk the streets of Brooklyn Heights, it's like you're walking through time. You can experience much of what the neighborhood was like 100 years ago or even 125 years ago because so many of the buildings that are standing in that neighborhood today were the very first buildings that were constructed on those lots in the mid-19th century. Now, it's no accident that these buildings still exist. It's because of the hard-fought preservation battles that were waged by local community groups that helped protect it and culminated in the creation of the Brooklyn Heights Historic District in 1965. But today's show isn't just about the neighborhood's architecture. It's also about the fact that Brooklyn Heights went from farmland high up on a ridge after the revolution to become the city's first suburb just four decades later. Not just the city's first suburb, but America's first suburb. So we'll be talking about how that happened and even, you know, what was suburban living like in the early 1800s? We have so much to say that we're splitting this show in two. This is part one of a two-part show. Today we'll focus on how Brooklyn Heights first developed, who planned it, how was it marketed, who moved in, and what did they build. And then in our next show, we'll pick up in the late 19th century to see how Brooklyn Heights changed with the times, how it weathered, you know, the storms of the 20th century and survived and actually flourished. Prepare to hear the names Pierpont, Hicks, and Lefevre. And Lady Montague. (laughs) So join us as we ferry off to Brooklyn Heights, America's first suburb.
Okay, Greg, to get started here, obviously, we need to situate the neighborhood of Brooklyn Heights. Obviously, we know where it is, and most of our listeners do, too. But take us there, quite literally. Explain what the borders are. Well, where it is exactly on a map is very key to its existence. It is a neighborhood on a plateau, on a heights, overlooking the opening of the East River into New York Harbor and, of course, across the water from lower Manhattan. Now, it is a largely residential neighborhood, mostly homes and apartment buildings that were built before the 1930s, with a few exceptions. And many of those buildings even date as far back as the 1820s. Now, what's unique about this neighborhood is that it's the first official New York Historic District, and unique in that the Historic District is almost coterminous with the actual neighborhood boundaries. That is to say that the entire neighborhood is almost within this historic district. Almost. Almost. So what didn't make the cut? Well, let me explain. So Brooklyn Heights stretches from slightly south of the entrance of the Brooklyn Bridge on the north side. The west is essentially the Brooklyn Queens Expressway or Furman Street, which is the local access road beneath the BQE. And is today next to Brooklyn Bridge Park in the East River. Yes. The southern border is very easy. It is Atlantic Avenue. And the eastern border to Brooklyn Heights is Court Street, which then becomes Cadman Plaza. Now, because this stretch, Court Street and Cadman Plaza, is the most commercial, the most built up, there are kind of a lot of different architectural things happening here. So some of that is not in the Brooklyn Heights historic district. But everything else that we'll be talking about is. In Cadman Plaza, we talked about in depth in our recent show on the history of downtown Brooklyn and also the sort of mini skyscraper zone that developed around Mm -hmm. it, including here in Brooklyn Heights. But Court Street and Cadman Plaza are not the only commercial stretch in Brooklyn Heights. No, no, there's this little zone on Henry Street, which has some cool restaurants and bars. Mm -hmm. But you may be thinking about Montague Street, which is sort of the main street of Brooklyn Heights. And we'll get to its development near the end of our show today. But haven't you kind of skipped over here, perhaps the best known part of Brooklyn Heights? Yeah, the most famous part of Brooklyn Heights for many people on the western side, hovering over the BQE, perhaps a little (laughs) precariously, is the Promenade, which is a platformed Esplanade, which presents this entire gorgeous view of the harbor and lower Manhattan to the public. Okay, so that's what's very interesting. Is it's a public space, although then right next to it are all of these private homes that are behind a large fence. But this esplanade wouldn't be added to the neighborhood until the 20th century. Right. And then, of course, there's Brooklyn Bridge Park, which is right along the edge of the water, which wouldn't even come along until the 21st century. Right. So I want us, Tom, to imagine what all of this looked like many centuries before that, 400 years ago. What could this possibly have looked like? So rewinding to the early 1600s. Yes. Now... I want us to start by imagining New Jersey, imagining the Palisades, a bluff that's very high above the water, right? Now, here in Brooklyn, it wasn't quite as steep on this particular spot. There was actually a very high elevation, a a cliff, with a steep slope all the way down to the waterfront. Just think of it as a very high outcropping, or Ipatonga, or high sandy bank. That was the name that the native Canarsie people gave to this region. And I'm assuming then that the the native people were using this as kind of a lookout point, this this high perch. It would have been ideal to look for any ships approaching in the harbor, say in September of 1609, when they might have seen Henry Hudson sailing into the harbor, not to mention the arrival of the Dutch who made their first permanent settlement on the island of Manhattan, New Amsterdam, in 1624. So then it would be the Dutch who would be creating these first European settlements here on this side of the East River as well, on Long Island. Yes, Long Island. Long Island, (laughs) which sounds funny to us today, but this this is Long Island. Everything (laughs) here from Brooklyn Heights out to to Montauk. The Hamptons, yeah. I mean, Brooklyn Heights is on Long Island, and there ain't nothing you can do about it. 
<laughs> well, in 1657, the Dutch settled their first towns here on this western end of Long Island, including one down at the very foot of this bluff that I just described. Okay. Situated around a very modest ferry landing. The name of the town is, of course, Breukelen, mm-hmm. named for a place in the Netherlands. Then, just seven years later in 1664, the English sailed into the harbor, and then promptly took over all of those Dutch land holdings. They would continue to rule the area, of course, until the late 18th century. And so then the English would anglicize the name yeah. to Brooklyn. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it sounds like a proper English word, Brooklyn. There was even a village in England named Brookland. And many old maps of Brooklyn actually spell it out like Brookland. Now, during this English period, several large mansions, large estates, begin cropping up on this high elevation here, and it soon took on the name Clover Hill. Clover Hill. Isn't that like an organic grocery brand? <laughs> I think I have some like, Clover Hill. So Clover Hill, like or- organic yogurt or something? <laughs> but, but I'm assuming it's because there was actual clover here, like there were fields, <laughs> Field, vegetation. Beautiful plant life everywhere. Yes, yeah, so it was a very lucky place for its first residence, Tom. Many of these first estates along here... The owners trace back to Dutch ancestry, and many of these first European landowners, their names will appear throughout the neighborhood to this day. Names like Remsen and Middaw and Furman. But these families are are building country estates up here on this ledge or overlooking the harbor. Yeah, it's like the most ideal property of Brooklyn because you're able to look out and you have a huge estate, right? They're all kind of right next to each other. Now, two particular homes that I want to talk about here. The first is that of Philip Livingston, who built a 40-acre estate here on property that was actually originally owned by the Remsons. It was a beautiful mansion house with adjoining orchard that was built in 1765. So he owned land all the way down to the water, so even down toward the slope. And at the waterfront, Livingston, at around today's Jeroleman Street, built the very first gin distillery and beer brewery to produce here in the borough. Isn't that amazing? Right there on the river. (laughs) Yes. Of all the beer that is now produced in Brooklyn, it starts right here at the foot of Jeroleman Street. The original craft brewery. (laughs) But this Livingston, is he the same Livingston? I mean, Livingston's a big New York City yes. family name. Mm-hmm. Is he the same Livingston that signed the Declaration of Independence? Yeah, believe it or not, one and the same. He lived here in Brooklyn Heights. He actually ended up fleeing his home during the war and escaped upstate, where he died in 1778. But then this point brings me to the second house that I want to talk about that was right next door and is related to the subject of the Revolutionary War. Now, just north on the area of today's Montague Street and Hicks sat a second house which belonged to the Cornell family and which would become known in urban legend as the House of Four Chimneys and remembered for its supposed involvement in the Revolutionary War. Today, if you go to the promenade, you'll see a flagpole and a plaque dedicated to this house. Which they call Four Chimneys... Um, they must have had a lot of rooms to heat. <laughs> a lot of hearths. <laughs> <laughs> had a lot of hearths. But what do you mean by supposedly? Well, there's an, an urban legend surrounding the house of the four chimneys that deserves a little inspection here. So the Battle of Brooklyn, August 1776, we've talked about it in other podcasts. Essentially, the English invade Long Island from Gravesend and essentially run Washington and his Continental Army to the very tip here of Long Island. They've been almost destroyed by the British troops. Now, in the run-up to the war, the American patriots had built forts in the areas in anticipation of the British arriving. And naturally, this high perch here was well-suited for one such fort named Fort Sterling. And that's today on Clark Street and Columbia Heights. You can also find a plaque to Fort Sterling there. Mm -hmm. But down here on Montague Street is where you find the second plaque for the House of the Four Chimneys. 
It was here, according to urban legend, that Washington met with seven generals and decided that it was more important to save the remainder of the Continental Army instead of continuing to fight them and what would have most certainly have been a devastating defeat. Right. And so he retreated to Manhattan and then and onward from there. But supposedly, why supposedly? Because sources claim that this famous meeting, which by tradition took place in the Cornell House, most likely actually took place at the Livingston House next door. And that would have perhaps even made more sense, uh, given Livingston's own connection to the American cause. Like Livingston had just left the back door open on his way out of town? (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, he probably just said, like, help yourself to whatever's in the fridge, you know. And so because of that meeting, Washington evacuated his men by every watery conveyance available on the waterfront, and the entire army left from the shores of Fulton Landing. Think about this, Tom. Think of how important this one moment is, because had they not escaped, we might not have actually had a revolution after that. And I, I, We might be delivering this uh, podcast in, with British accents. <laughs> which would be incredibly annoying, I would imagine. But I mean, that's how important Brooklyn Heights is as a revolutionary site. And I think people forget that very easily because there's so much more that happens in the history of this neighborhood. Now, post-war and into the new nation of the United States, the village of Brooklyn, still down here, you know, at the foot of this little cliff, reverts back to its sylvan pastoral ways for a little while. And before I pass it back up to you, Tom, I want to read something from the New York Post in 1802. And it's the real estate listing for Philip Livingston's house, which ran in the Post in 1802. Quote, the country seat of the late Philip Livingston, Esquire, deceased on Brooklyn Heights in Kings County, containing about 13 acres. The mansion house is large and convenient. The property and situation are too well known to require a further description. <laughs> so, uh, so this house, so this is sort of a harbinger of what is about to happen in this marvelous neighborhood. And when was that ad placed in in the Post? 1802. Which brings us back into this amazing little period, this period right after the war, but before the opening of the Erie Canal. I just spent, you know, two Mm -hmm. weeks in that that wonderful era um, for my last show that was on Dr. Hussock's Enchanted Garden. Mm -hmm. I'm really digging this period, right? (laughs) But it's this period of like optimism and promise and, and proving that the American experiment would succeed. And, you know, it, all of that was happening in New York, but it would also happen here in Brooklyn. Well, one thing we know is Livingston House is for sale here. What else is on the market up here? Well, there are other beautiful homes up here. There's the Midaw Mansion um, in today's northern section of the Heights. Uh, around today's Henry and Poplar Streets. That mansion had actually been inherited by uh, the Hicks brothers, John and Jacob Hicks, who I I just like referring to (laughs) as the Hicks brothers because they sound kind of like a a boy band. (laughs) But so the Hicks are kind of, they have a bunch of property in the north part of uh, Brooklyn Heights. But south of there, as you mentioned, the Livingston family had that large swath of land, which was bordered kind of by today's Duraliman Street to the north and State Street to the south. Duraliman is an interesting name. Was there a Duraliman family that moved in? Oh, yeah. Old man Toynus Duraliman. Old Toynus, he was a grocer, he was a farmer, and he bought part of the Livingston farm and actually raised produce here, um, which he put up for sale in the markets of New York. And, and there was a lane that separated his farm from his neighbors to the north. That was the Remsen family. That lane would end up being called Duraliman Lane um, in 1805, uh, which is today's Duraliman Street. And he'd, he'd walk down that uh, steep slope, like you mentioned, to, to take a boat over to southern Manhattan. But it just sounds to me like it's just very few families, just a handful of people that really live up here around this place. When did people start moving in here, like in greater numbers? Well, there, there's one more family I want to point out that we need to meet. That would be the family of Mr. Hezekiah Pierpont. Hezekiah was born in 1768 into a prominent New England family. So prominent, Greg, 
He was related to James Pierpont, who was one of the founders of Yale University. He moved to New York. Hezekiah moved to New York in 1790, and he would build a fortune um, in importing and exporting and, and kind of like having wild adventures on the high seas. <laughs> he would lose his money and get it back. But he also married well. He married Anna Marie Constable of, you know, the Constables of New York. Daughter of William Constable. That is correct, who had all kinds of money and gave Hezekiah 500,000 acres of land in upstate New York uh, as a kind of wedding present. But he didn't live there. He didn't live in upstate New York. He he moved here, right, to Brooklyn. Yes, he wanted to build an estate right here. So in around 1803, he bought up 60 acres of land from various estates around here. Now, 60 acres would be a pretty large plot of land here in Brooklyn Heights today. So was he just going to develop it for his own pleasure or? Well, he wanted to build himself a nice estate, of course, you know, looking out over the bluffs like his neighbors. Uh, But then, yes, he would also divide. He was a businessman. He wanted to, you know, he saw how he could divide it up and sell it off at some point. But he also he dreamed of um, developing something more upscale, something very refined around here. But he knew that this would only be possible if there was a reliable ferry service between this area and lower Manhattan, where the city was situated. And to underscore, this is the only way to get from New York to Brooklyn is by water. And to underscore further, (laughs) a lot of underscoring, (laughs) that also um, ferry service wasn't that reliable. You know, you had to have the right weather conditions. If it started to storm, you were stuck on one side or the other. It could take a very long time to cross. You could end up blowing into uh, today's Governor's Island. You think commutes are bad today. I mean, it, (laughs) it could really be, you know, like a pain to get back and forth. And because of that, then he would go into business with the steam ferry developer and inventor, Robert Fulton who got a 25-year lease to run his New York and Brooklyn steam ferry boat company to run the service between today's Fulton Ferry Landing over to the area of today's South Street Seaport. And so what was when was the opening date? When did service start here for the ferry? It launched on May 10th, 1814. Uh, the ferry was named the Nassau, and it on that day carried in its maiden voyage across the East River 549 passengers, one wagon, and three horses. The New York Times journalist Sam Roberts wrote about that first trip a few years ago, and he quoted a newspaper account at the time, quote, This noble boat surpassed expectations of the public in the rapidity of her movements as those on board glided across the unpredictable river as gracefully as if they were passing over a bridge. And so this was just between New York and Brooklyn, right? That's right. And how long did this take? He cut the commuting time in half. It was now just 12 minutes to get across. Tickets were four cents, although you could buy um, an annual commutation pass for $10. And just like that, the commuter was born. And Fulton is, is of course, largely the, the one associated with this great innovation. But Pierpont mm-hmm. himself really had a hand on it, a hand well, in it, right? <laughs> yeah, he was a chief investor. Um, and he would even later become very active in running the company. He would become the president of the company at one point. And plus, he used his influence then to pressure the state of New York to officially charter the village of Brooklyn in 1816 which made it the first urban development in Kings County with a population of 4,000 residents. And that meant then that, you know, the village of Brooklyn could go off and pave streets and do other kind of municipal activities. And was that village, was that essentially just around the ferry landing and up here on Clover Hill? Right. And and also along the waterfront in both directions from the ferry. And so today it's it's kind of in a way hard to imagine because you have to take away the bridges. You have to take away the BQE, Cadman Plaza. And then just imagine, you know, those first streets and sort of clusters of homes that were growing out from around that ferry landing. In a way, it encompasses several of today's neighborhoods of Brooklyn. You've got parts of Dumbo, parts of downtown Brooklyn, and Brooklyn Heights, all around the ferry. 
But once that regular ferry service started in 1814, development would actually follow very quickly. I assume that more people, because they had greater access to coming to Brooklyn, then decided that they wanted to perhaps live here. And so did these landowners here in Clover Hill, here, here on the Heights, did they just start selling off their land? Well, so imagine you've got the Hicks brothers in the north, mm-hmm. right, with that big swath of land. And you've got Pierpont south of them and, and several other landowners. They didn't all agree exactly on the general direction for the neighborhood. In the Northern Heights, the, the Hicks wanted and imagined a neighborhood of smaller lots and more affordable development. They, they imagined an area that was attracted to people who already lived in the area, people who were working down on the docks or who were artisans. But south of them, Pierpont wanted, he wanted larger lots for more refined homes. He wanted as well to set minimum standards for development, you know, to ensure that his development would be really upscale. And meanwhile, are any of these estates linked by actual official streets? Because there is no, like, grand urban plan here, right? So they all must be kind of uh, sort of organically developed paths and streets. Yes, some streets already existed by the time the ferry started service. According to Robert Furman in his book, Brooklyn Heights, The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of America's First Suburb, in 1806, the Hicks brothers had laid out a street and named it for their their relatives, the Mm Middaws. And around the same time, they laid out a bunch of uh, fruit-themed streets as well, perhaps to promote their own family business, Mm -hmm. um, which was in selling fruit. And the, I presume they sold cranberries. They sold cranberries. And they must have sold pineapples. Well, yeah, an exotic uh, fruit that actually denotes wealth. And uh, then, of course, like, you know, they sold oranges. <laughs> and those are the three fruit streets in Brooklyn Heights. In 1810, they would also lay out Willow Street and Henry Street. And then, of course, you know, there was Hicks Street named for themselves. So the streets were already here. Some of these streets were already here by the time the ferry opened. In the northern part of today's Brooklyn Heights, which explains why the oldest, you know, wooden frame structures in Brooklyn Heights are mostly located in this northern section because Mm -hmm. it's it's the oldest. And those were also more affordable houses that were constructed. If that was the Hicks, what's Pierpont doing south of here? Well, He would get into the game a few years later. He opened up Pierpont Street in 1820. But by that point, Hicks Street was already developed. According to the excellent book, Old Brooklyn Heights, New York's First Suburb by Clay Lancaster, Gabriel Furman in 1821 noted 31 dwellings, two groceries, one schoolhouse, and two stables on Hicks Street. So to put that in perspective, when... Pierpont Street was laid out for the first time. Hicks Street was already pretty developed. Mm -hmm. And plus, he pointed out that Pierpont Street was not actually open to development until 1832. So not to get too bogged down in dates here, but let's just say that Pierpont in many ways kind of like held off and waited a little bit to develop you know, perhaps waiting for the ferry service to kind of catch on to and for advance this, itself, right? And for this area to become desirable by people with money. Around the same time, he would open up Constable Street, uh, which he would later rename Montague after the Lady Wortley Montague, an English <laughs> author who was actually a relative of the Pierponts. And then in, in 1826, as the city was jubilant and celebrating the opening of the Erie Canal, he, he ran Clinton Street through his property um, and named it after DeWitt Clinton, the oh. governor of New York, father of the Erie Canal. <laughs> And and through the 1820s, he was he was promoting and you know in in real estate ads in the newspapers, his lots that were for sale as well, writing that they offered quote the nearest country retreat with all the advantages of the country and most of the conveniences of the city, and thus we have the ingredients for what would become the first suburb. Right now, you name dropped. DeWitt Clinton here. As I want uh, to do. So with the Erie Canal opening by the 1830s, there are 
is so much prosperity entering into New York Harbor. And we mostly frame that as a story of New York's prosperity. But some of that, of course, spills over here onto the banks of Brooklyn. Yeah. And because think of all the new business that was coming to the docks in Brooklyn and the in the warehouses and storage for those canal boats that were floating up and down the Hudson, which led to increased business in the factories in Brooklyn as well. So businesses are flourishing in lower Manhattan. And, you know, maybe some of those business owners flush with cash are looking for a nice country estate mm-hmm. or retreat for for their families. The, the growing prosperity of New York was good for Brooklyn and was good for uh, Pierpont and the future of Brooklyn Heights. And let us not forget that the city's not just getting bigger and busier, but it's also getting more crowded, which brings with it sickness. So there were all kinds of reasons why people might want to escape the city and live, you know, a short commute away. Well, many people chose to move up to the northern areas of, say, Greenwich Village. For many others, Brooklyn became an option. And in 1834, the village of Brooklyn expanded to become the city of Brooklyn, now with a population in 1834 of 24,000 people. This meant that it would be able to grow more easily, acquire new lands, and that full-scale development was about to take off throughout the entire city of Brooklyn, but also right up here in Brooklyn Heights. It's at this point that the story veers off from the actual development of the city of Brooklyn, which will expand well into Long Island. It will also, in a way, be the birth of Brooklyn Heights as a center for Brooklyn society. And so we will explore Brooklyn Heights in the mid-19th century. We'll watch Brooklyn grow right after this. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, The Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery+. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. So, Tom, here's a rather extraordinary fact that sort of underscores the growth of this neighborhood. In the early 18-teens, here in the area of Brooklyn Heights, there were less than 10 houses. By that the, isn't very many. No, no. By the start of the Civil War, there are 600 houses in just this contained area. Now, all of this has to do with the increasing prosperity of the area from the 30s into the 1840s into the 1850s. You have many more merchants who are still working down in lower Manhattan who don't want to live all the way up north on Manhattan Island in New York, it just makes more sense 
to live over here in Brooklyn. And of course, if you have a little extra money to live here in Brooklyn Heights. But still here in the 1830s, the Fulton Steam Ferry is the only steam ferry that's operating between Brooklyn and, and New York? Yeah, for, I mean, for, for many years, it was the only game in town, but a couple more ferries do enter the picture here into the 1840s and 1850s, the Wall Street Ferry Service, and then later the South Ferry Service. This grows Brooklyn exponentially, and soon here in the Heights, this would become known as Brooklyn's wealthy enclave, an alternative to Fifth Avenue with all of the old families that we just mentioned in their old homes, but also a lot of these new merchants, like Nouveau Riche would move in here, and they would develop homes here. And what's so interesting is that most of the people who lived in Brooklyn Heights, most of the men worked in New York. So it's thus becoming truly the first official suburb of New York City. And to be clear, just to define the word suburb, you mean a commuter's town, a, a bedroom community yes. for people to come back to after working. Yeah. Most people who lived here in this area did not work in this area. They worked over there in New York. Now, over these decades, there would be an incredible diverse array of housing styles, which Thankfully, today, you can see and compare because most of them are still there. Greek and Gothic revival, Renaissance revival, Italianate, and then, of course, the federal style, which is a very predominant form of architecture here in Brooklyn Heights. Many spacious backyards, stables, and handsome stairs stepping down into the cobblestone streets. And all those styles that you just kind of rolled through were popular in different eras, too. Yes. So they, they, you know, they belong to different eras. Well, they would bleed into each other and would sometimes be hybrids of all those different kinds of styles, influenced by their neighbors. You know, each person was developing their own mansion or their own house here. So it was whatever their personal preference was. But again, the, the northern part, the old Hicks estate, of Brooklyn Heights was home to many, you know, simpler, more modest, wooden-framed homes. Yeah, it's striking to walk from the oldest section, and actually the housing isn't as ornate or as fancy as it is as you get more south, where it's more brownstones and a lot more luxurious. Of course, there was a huge fire in Brooklyn Heights in September of 1848, and not surprisingly, it swept through a lot of that older section because of all of those wooden structures. It destroyed seven blocks of homes. But for the most part, the houses that you see in this neighborhood were the first homes to be built on these plots of land. But back in, in New York, then in, by the 1840s, you have the most affluent New Yorkers who are building homes, you know, at the base of Fifth Avenue, starting to mm -hmm. creep up Fifth Avenue, which is kind of right in the middle of that city. It's literally but, in the middle of the island, yeah. But over here, these affluent residents are actually not in the middle of Brooklyn's development, but they're kind of perched up here on this on this plateau. Yeah, it's almost like an isolated pocket, which would only become slightly more removed in 1848 with the development of Brooklyn City Hall, just further east of this area, which would create a whole like civic district and commercial center and would block off Brooklyn Heights, in a sense, as this uh, ultra-wealthy enclave. And was there any crossover between the, the families of Fifth Avenue and the families of Brooklyn Heights? Yeah, there wasn't, actually, which is interesting. We, we didn't have... We had improved transportation, but it still wasn't so great that there was a lot of mobility. You had a parallel class of elites up here, many tracing from original Brooklyn families, others from the new merchant class, as Brooklyn grows larger into Long Island, the Brooklyn aristocratic class here becomes more conservative on one hand, but also provincial and actually looked down upon by many in New York. Even by 1860, they're kind of looked down upon by Fifth Avenue High Society. 1860, when Brooklyn grows to become the third largest city in the United States. But because they're not New York, they're still looked down upon. What a bunch of snobs. <laughs> I know. And kind of just generally annoying. Um, there <laughs> yes. were also just middle class 
Brooklynites too, who were moving to this area. And yeah, and this area became attractive to them as well. And so by the 1850s, these new developments spread further south of here, furthering that grid plan past Atlantic Avenue and developing neighborhoods that today we call Cobble Hill and Carroll Gardens. And the, and the streets of Brooklyn Heights and like Clinton Street would just continue south right into those neighborhoods. Yeah, they would stretch even further south and become, you know, quite lengthy. In total, this whole area, including Red Hook and Gowanus and later Park Slope when it would be developed, all of this would be called South Brooklyn because all of it is south of the original village. Although today, there's so much more Brooklyn that's even more <laughs> south of South Brooklyn. But let's go back up to the height of Brooklyn Heights. Uh-huh. When you're up on that, that perch, and then you said it kind of sloped down yes. to the water. What was going on there? Was anything actually on that kind of rugged slope? Yeah, I mean, you couldn't, it was impossible to build upon the slope, right? But then- It was but, irregular. Yes. I mean, you would walk down to the waterfront, but mm-hmm. it, it was not often easy. Well, in 1854, there was actually a very romantic bridge that was constructed from Montague Street to the waterfront that allowed for easier access to the waterfront, you know, and of course to get to these ferries, in particular to the Wall Street ferry landing that was down by the waterfront. Which was at the base of Montague Street. Yes. When Montague continued to the water. When it was at the water, right. So this bridge allowed you to get there easier. It was designed by an architect whose name is all over the neighborhood. He's probably the defining architect. His name is Menard Lefevre. Much of Brooklyn Heights, in fact, had caught Lefevre. <laughs> they had the fever for Lefevre. This bridge was so lovely and so adored that people came from miles around just to cross the bridge. It was had a, had a kind of a romantic flair about it. Uh, but I would say by the 1850s, now you had a, you know, a couple decades of, of development here, that the neighborhood now had some very significant aspects about it that recommended it as a place to visit. For instance, Brooklyn Heights was the home of one of America's most popular newspapers, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, which began publication in 1841. Their offices would be located on what is today 28 Old Fulton Street. Now, as we stated in our Walt Whitman show, he was an editor at the Brooklyn Daily Eagle for two years. In our recent Whitman show, we talked a lot about, I guess, Brooklyn Heights and Brooklyn's development because he was an editor here, but his whole family even helped. Well, they, they built houses all over, including many here in Brooklyn Heights. His father was an early developer. Yeah. Another incredibly appealing feature to Brooklyn Heights was the great number of churches Earning Brooklyn, in fact, the nickname City of Churches. Yeah, I mean, it is frequently used in newspapers of the 19th century for Brooklyn itself. For instance, this is, I just found this very amusing, in the Daily Eagle, in an article in 1857, there was an article on a controversial proposal to keep businesses open on Sunday. The article says, quote, Shall Brooklyn, the city of churches, be the first to set the example of desecrating that day which all Christians throughout the world unite in keeping holy? Cries, no, no. <laughs> so they were very, very proud of this, of this particular title. What were some of the churches that opened uh, during this period? Uh, some of the notable churches included... The Holy Trinity Church on Montague, which opened in 1847, and featured the highest spire, the tallest structure in the neighborhood. It was could be seen by sailors out in the New York Harbor. It was a church that was also designed by Minard Lefevre. They had the fever there. But don't go looking for that steeple anymore. And we'll explain in the next episode. There are many more churches. Brooklyn has its own Grace Church, which opened here in the mid-19th century. There were many others. Some of them have since been demolished. Some of them today have been turned into condos. Well, when the when the neighborhood is protected like it is, you can't just rip a church down. No, you no. Gotta move in. No, so there's a lot of people who live in old churches in Brooklyn Heights. And when you look at paintings of the Brooklyn skyline, mm-hmm. you know, like from M- Manhattan's point of view. Yeah. From this era, you see all of those steeples, which does kind of like paint a picture of a of a very conservative 
city, more conservative, one would imagine, than New York. But by conservative, we sort of mean old school conservative, as in reserved, right? No party animals in Brooklyn, I guess one way to say it. But the missions of many of these churches during this period would have been considered very radical for the day. Many here were involved, for instance, in the abolitionist movement, the efforts by people in these ministries to rescue escaped enslaved people from the South and then to house them in spaces along the Underground Railroad. Now, we have a whole show on the Underground Railroad, and in that show, we feature the most renowned church of Brooklyn Heights. That would be Plymouth Church. This was a Congregationalist church founded in 1843 by friends of the abolitionist brothers Arthur and Louis Tappan. But in October of 1847, they imported a firebrand minister of great renown named Henry Ward Beecher. And it was here at this church that he became one of the most famous men in America, but actually very intimately connected with this neighborhood. He was so popular. He His sermons were read in, in newspapers around the country. He was a household name, yeah. Beecher was, and so popular, in fact, that they had to run special, quote, Beecher boats to get people <laughs> ferried back and forth yeah, that uh, was between the, New York. Yeah, that was the nickname. I mean, so he was not only this incredibly famous minister, but he was also a real like salesman for Brooklyn Heights itself. From Debbie Applegate's book called The Most Famous Man in America, which is a biography of Henry Ward Beecher, quote, the pastor was one of the few men on the Heights who did not work in Manhattan, leaving him plenty of time to call upon the ladies of the church. He poked around the docks, talking to sailors and ferry pilots. On Fulton Street, he stopped to chat with local men, absorbing the politics and personalities of Brooklyn. So I would say by 1860 that this growing, thriving, upscale neighborhood of Brooklyn was best known to the world by the Brooklyn Daily Eagle and by Henry Ward Beecher. When you visit the the neighborhood today, you know, I think the dominant thing that pops out at you is actually the beautiful homes mm-hmm. when you walk, when you stroll the streets of Brooklyn Heights today. And during this next period, from the 1860s until the early 1880s, you saw the, the construction of many more of these fine, luxurious homes, townhouses. Um, many of them were constructed in the Renaissance Revival style and also in the Venetian Gothic style. That Renaissance revival style, according to Clay Lancaster, is characterized by, quote, a certain opulence manifesting itself in an increased scale and an abundance of ornamentation, especially around openings. Some of these features, such as capitals, friezes, and consoles, are embellished with lush carvings of acanthus leaves and less orthodox forms of vegetation. Uh, This is why Brooklyn Heights is kind of made for the autumn when the leaves change, because all of that rich brownstones and and red bricks combined with all of the trees because there's a lot of trees in Brooklyn Heights mm-hmm. it's just it's just it's so picturesque but we should point out that by the 1860s there were still some parts of Brooklyn Heights that were hardly even developed at all kind of surprisingly you know for example uh, Robert Furman in his book points out that a map from the late 1860s shows that most of Montague Street's north side had hardly any development at all because that side of the block was actually functioning as backyards for the luxurious homes over on Mm, Pierpont. mm -hmm. But now, many decades into the life of Brooklyn Heights here, these families were not just developing large homes. They were now developing institutions that they could visit and appreciate. As was that parallel society over across the river. You know, they were starting a bunch of things at the same time. But actually, one of the area's first really big institutions, the Apprentices Library, had been formed back in the 1820s. It was formed for the purposes of, quote, forming a repository of books, maps, pictures, drawing apparatus, models of machinery, tools and implements, all collected for enlarging knowledge in literature, science and art, and thereby improving the condition of mechanics, manufacturers, artisans and others. And by Apprentice's Library, I assume it's for 
apprentices to mm-hmm. to further enrich themselves like working class middle class men to visit and develop their intellect and and curiosity about life that's right and also keep them out of the bars you know like keep them on the right path and it was erected at henry street and cranberry in that northern section with great pomp and ceremony back in 1825 and its cornerstone was actually laid by the Marquis de Lafayette when he was visiting New York oh, on that like, big... Wow, I was like, what is he doing in town? <laughs> now, this is back in 1825. Okay, And yeah. during that ceremony, you might recall, we mentioned in the Whitman show that it was during that ceremony, schools were let out. Every, you know, The kids all went to watch Lafayette lay this cornerstone, and Walt Whitman himself was lifted into the air and kissed on the head by Lafayette. And so this, the Apprentices Library, was one of the first institutions of Brooklyn Heights. Right. And it would actually sort of live on and morph, you know, in the following decades, leading to the creation of several other important institutions that would ultimately have names that we still know today, like the Brooklyn Museum, the Brooklyn Botanic Garden, and the Brooklyn Children's Museum. Those all trace their lineages back to this Apprentices Library. Wow, they're spinoffs. But was there... Was there an actual library for, you know, the residents to, to check out books, though? Yeah, yes. In 1852, a group formed the Brooklyn Athenaeum and Reading Room um, in a three-story building at the corner of Atlantic and Clinton Streets. And this was centered more on, like, a business class of men, also to keep them probably out of the bars, but people who had already had more classical education. This was to keep them sort of intellectually stimulated as they they sort of launched into their careers. I just have to add that as a former resident of Cobble Hill, I I am aware of of the spot where this stood because it is the location of a Key Foods where I would get my groceries. was on the very spot of the Athenaeum. Does that Key Foods have a 2,000-seat auditorium, Greg? <laughs> it had a good produce section, but I, don't, I didn't see an auditorium anywhere. Mm. Well, later that decade, a group formed the Brooklyn Mercantile Library Association, which operated out of the Athenaeum before merging those two libraries in 1869, follow me here, mm-hmm. into one library that was located at 197 Montague Street. All right, so still in this area. Mm -hmm. A new kind of merged library. Well, in 1878, that would be renamed the Brooklyn Public Library. Wow, so the Brooklyn Public Library is born in Brooklyn Heights. Well, today's official Brooklyn Public Library would actually be formed in 1896. It would be chartered by uh, the state legislature of New York. But yeah, that name traces back to these organizations. All of this history passing before my eyes here. It kind of makes you wish that there was a place to, you know, keep it all, doesn't it? All this history? Yeah. Think about how actually these civic leaders felt, you know, because many of them had literally seen the neighborhood and the city just, like, develop before their eyes. They thought that, yes, this story needed to be preserved. And so in 1863, prominent citizens here, including... Henry Pierpont, Hezekiah's son, formed the Long Island Historical Society uh, with the stated goal of, quote, preserving the history of America, New York State, and most important, the counties, towns, and villages of Long Island. The Long Island Historical Society. That's right. And they were also here in the neighborhood? Yeah. Well, first they operated out of some rooms on Court Street, but then they acquired land at Pierpont and Clinton Streets. And in 1878, they, they held a design contest to, you know, design their new headquarters. And that was won by George Post, who was the architect of uh, the Vanderbilt Mansion. He also designed the New York Stock Exchange building. Oh, yeah. One of the great architects of the Gilded Age. Right. And his Renaissance Revival brick and terracotta building opened in 1881. And a century later in 1885 would change its name to the Brooklyn Historical Society. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, we are frequently at the Brooklyn Historical Society, but if you step back and look at the beautiful exterior of the building, you'll still see the words Long Island Historical Society written upon it. So you have all this culture. You have Now we have libraries. Now we have history. What if you live in Brooklyn Heights and you want to go out for, like, a night of fun? Well, fun in this conservative enclave meant taking in perhaps a concert 
at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Again, the story is that prominent citizens came together in the 1850s to form the Philharmonic Society of Brooklyn um, and then raised money to construct the Academy of Music, which was located on the south side of Montague Street at Clinton Street and opened in 1861. And this, too, included an auditorium that sat over 2,000 people. The Brooklyn Academy of Music would be a fixture of, of Brooklyn's cultural scene, cultural world, and this would remain a fixture of the neighborhood. As Brooklyn would grow in all directions, you know, from it, people would still flock here to Montague Street. And so all of these things that you've talked about, they have, there's parallel versions of them across the water in New York. And the important thing to remember is by this point, by 1860, Brooklyn is the third largest city in America. So it's it's almost like a just more conservative, more sober version of all of those different types of institutions, wouldn't you say? Well, there were some, you know, rather tawdry things happening over here in Brooklyn Heights. Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, Henry Ward Beecher before, and I think you even mentioned that he enjoyed being, you know... <laughs> the company of ladies. In the company of ladies, particularly those who were his congregants, um, and perhaps didn't mind that many or most of their husbands left for the island of Manhattan during the day. We don't have time to go into, like, what went down with Henry Ward Beecher and the scandals that arose in the 1870s. But let's just say the brief version is that Beecher was accused of having an affair with a woman named Elizabeth Tilton, who was the wife of one of his best friends and, and colleagues, Theodore Tilton. What makes this story, like, extra special is that it also features prominently Victoria Woodhall, who was an early feminist leader. She was spiritualist. She was a proponent of free love and much more. She was frustrated with Beecher uh, for what she saw as his hypocrisy and accused him very publicly of having many affairs with his congregants, including with uh, Mrs. Tilton. And then to drive it all home, she even published all the details in her own magazine, uh, which quickly sold out, of, you know, 150,000 uh, copies. It caused a huge sensation, not just here in sleepy, quote unquote, conservative Brooklyn Heights, but throughout the country. Yeah. Leading to a big trial that everybody followed in 1875, at which Beecher was acquitted finally. And, of course, he managed to somehow brand himself the victim uh -huh. of the entire thing. Now, if you'd like more of the grittier details of that, there's an old Barry Boys podcast on the life of Henry Ward Beecher, which we'll put up on the website. But in total, Tom, you've now given us the highs and lows of Brooklyn Heights entering into the Gilded Age here. Now, is there anything major that we missed well, there, there was actually something else, Greg, that was looming over the neighborhood, or perhaps more accurately, it was looming over the blocks just north of here. You know, both New York and Brooklyn were growing very, very quickly and because of immigration, but also because of all of the industry that was happening here in Brooklyn and along the waterfront and all the factories. But all of that traffic was getting jammed down here at the water's edge. Imagine that everybody had to wait for one of those ferries to mm -hmm. go back and forth. So it was clear, it had become clear by the 1860s that a bridge, some kind of massive bridge, would need to be constructed to link these two great cities. It would be in both of their interests, these two major cities, if they could just have an easier way to get, get around and get between each other. Now, we have an entire episode on the history of the Brooklyn Bridge, and we're out of time on this show, but construction took 14 years. The bridge would open in 1883, and that story does take place north of Brooklyn Heights, although, you know, John and Emily Roblin did live on Columbia Heights, and Washington Roblin, uh, John's son, who would take over mm -hmm. the project when his father died— would also supervise from here in Brooklyn Heights. Oh, yeah, you would have with ease been able to see the construction and they saw the entire bridge rising out of the water. After the bridge opened in 1883, it became clear that the bridge could help both cities grow in different respects, especially once rail service headed over the bridge as well. Development could really pick up speed farther into the city of Brooklyn. But what would that mean for Brooklyn Heights. 
How would that affect this rather affluent enclave? Now, for many, this is where the story of Brooklyn Heights really gets good, right? Because there's a, a the kind of interesting twists and turns that happen in the neighborhood could not possibly have been predicted by the old Hicks brothers or by Menard Lefevre. In our next show, we're going to take Brooklyn Heights into the 20th century and it's going to have its ups and downs. It's going to get a significant new construction project that will be for the benefit of all New Yorkers. And we're going to tell the story of why we have such a beautifully preserved neighborhood to visit today. That show will be out in two weeks. To see illustrations and read more about today's show, visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. We'd like to especially thank our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com. Because of you, Greg and I are able to make this show our full-time job. So thank you so much for your support. And we'd like to give a specific call out to those who support us on Patreon. Diana Z, Joe F, Gary K, Guy S, Lisa R, and Amy C from Manhattan. Pete G. from Rutherford, New Jersey, Janice R. from Lexington, Kentucky, Luke R. from Salt Lake City, Utah, and Daniel S. from Paris, France. And all of you, of course, have our latest episode of the Bowery Boys Movie Club waiting in your feeds if you haven't checked that out. Tom and I explore the movie Gangs of New York, directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Leo. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks so much for joining us on this romp through the history of Brooklyn Heights. Come back in two weeks for the rest of the story. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.